Welcome to another episode of Cover to Cover, a podcast featuring musical conversations about an album or song which has changed and enhanced someone's life. I am your host, songwriter Matt Targa. Thanks for joining us today. We humans connect with the presence of music in our own unique way. As an artist, a concert goer, through our headphones, or as something that simply lives in our everyday background. Our guest today comes to us from Akron, Ohio. He is Bo of the Rock Savages podcast. The Rock Savages podcast celebrates the world of rock and roll. They highlight some of the greatest rock music ever created by interviewing the musicians, producers, engineers, and roadies that make it all happen. And uh, for our conversation today, we're going to be discussing the third record from the Black Crows titled Amorica. Amorica was released on November the 1st of 1994 for American Recordings. And this features the classic lineup of Johnny Colt on bass guitar, Mark Ford on guitar, Steve Gorman on drums, Eddie Harsh on keyboards, and Chris Robinson on the vocals and harmonica, along with brother Rich Robinson on guitar. Without further ado, let's get to our conversation and welcome Bo to the program. Bo, yes, Bo sir. of the Rock Savages podcast, I am eager to talk to you tonight about the Black Crows' third studio record, Amorica. But before we get into Amorica, how are you? We're recording on a uh, Wednesday night, Wednesday night, excuse me, in April. How is, yeah. how, how is life? And can you, uh, you know, give a, a little bit of uh, an entree, I guess, into who is the Rock Savages podcast? Well, first of all, I mean, life is always good. It does, you know, if if you're alive, then it's good. So that's my, you know, my my tiny basic philosophy. Um, everything is going well, um, except except man, it's it's winter time in April. I don't get it. It's snowing right now, so it's driving me nuts. But uh, other than that, in my universe, everything is is going great. Um, the Rock Savages podcast. You want to hear about that thing, huh? A little bit. What it all means. You know, who do you like to talk to? How do you approach music? What uh, what are you guys all about? Uh, well, it's me and my co-host Paul. We're both we're both local musicians, all original songwriters. Um, and basically, we started the podcast off wanting to promote the local scene, wanting to promote our stuff, and and, and it came from a place of you know knowing that we're probably never going to be on the radio. So if we, if we want to do this and we mean it then, you know, it's it's time to, to make a media platform for ourselves and our friends in the scene. So we started it out that way. And then it just kind of evolved into doing interviews with touring bands that are coming through town. So we would go to shows. We would uh, interview the bands before the show or after the show. And, and that was a lot of fun. But we found that being where we are, we're not in New York or LA, you know, so there's not the traffic that we needed to keep producing that amount of content. So we kind of switched over to phone interviews and, uh, you know, it's, it's gotten bigger as far as the guest goes, you know, we've had people from Ozzy Osbourne's band, The Sword, and, you know, we just did one with uh, legendary record producer John Tusker, who worked on all the Corrosion and Conformity albums and, uh, and so on and so forth. So, it's kind of evolving, you know, and uh, it's evolving upward, not downward. So, I mean, uh, not de-evolving, you know. So we're, we're getting yeah. better at it, and uh, 
it's something we really enjoy. So, you know, hopefully it continues to grow, and uh, we're just going to keep plugging along, man. For our conversation today, we are going to be discussing the Black Crows' third studio record, Amorica. And uh, we find this particular outfit of the Black Crows very similar to what we heard in the previous record, Southern Harmony and Musical Companion. All the pieces are in place. We've got Mark Ford on guitar complimenting Rich Robinson. Right. Chris, Chris is the vocalist, of course. We've got Eddie Harsh on keys. And Johnny Colt, of course, playing electric bass. Where did, yeah, where did this where did this begin for you? You know, what what compelled you when you know when we started, you know, chatting a little bit on um what we were gonna talk about, you know, what inspired you to choose Amorica? Well, I saw that you have already had already covered the Southern Harmony Musical Companion on one of your other episodes and you know Amazing choice. I mean, that's also a masterpiece. I mean, their first four records are highly regarded as their best work. That can be argued for or against. I mean, it's all subjective. Um, but Amorica, Amorica always, I'd never, I've, I've been listening to it since it came out. You know, I'll put it down and I'll pick it back up. And it's just, it never goes away after all these years. What I, I mean, the, what, intrigues me about Amorica the most is I was a fan of the band when they when they first broke with Southern Harmony Musical Companion or excuse me I'm sorry Shake Your Money Maker and then I saw them evolved with uh, Southern Harmony and it was a totally different record than the first one and it kind of challenged it, it challenged the narrative it's like oh they're just a rock and roll cover band of the Rolling Stones that's what they were branded as back then and they they took that and they probably took it personally, and they just changed it up and did a completely different sounding record with Southern Harmony. You know, a lot of people consider it their blues record. And that's kind of how they created it and recorded it. You know, they did it in eight days, and they did most of it live. And, you know, so in Enter Amorica a couple years later, I remember getting the record and putting it on. And honestly, I didn't like it at first. I was like, what is this? This is completely different than what I'm used to hearing from these guys. And it took me about three solid listens front to back. And, you know, back in the 90s, I don't think we we're as overstimulated as we are now. I'm not even sure if people can do that anymore. They put a record on if it sucks, they just throw it away. But back then, I had the patience, I guess, and, and I listened to it about three times. And the first time it was difficult. And by the third time, I was like, oh, I'm in. I get it now. It just took a minute. And I think that was the whole goal of it. I think that, that this band is so intriguing to me because they challenge the listener, but they're following a muse that nobody can really predict. You know what I mean? And I think that, that any band with any kind of greatness as far as songwriting goes is going to do. You know what I mean? So. That was my introduction to Amorica. The Black Crows are masters at sequencing their records. And yes. this is its own special roller coaster. It's 1994. You mentioned that there you know, certainly weren't as many distractions as we experience today. It's, the dawn, it's the dawn of the Internet. America Online is pretty much brand spanking new. You know, 
right. people are people are starting to talk about bands a little bit in in forums in in different kinds of chat rooms, and the emphasis is still on full length albums. And the Crows never ever have failed to deliver on really beautiful full length concepts. Would you would you say that that's a fair assessment of this record? That it's you know it may not be a, a a, a, a one singular concept, but nevertheless, there's always a vibe that they're seeking. Yeah, it's not. It, I completely agree with that. I mean, it's it's a, it's a perfect assessment of the band. You know, I think that's the art form that they choose to cover. I'm a fan of all their records. You know, I mean, uh, some fans are split down the middle. You know, they like this or they don't like that. But I've just I've I've gone on the journey with them. First day buyer of almost everything they've ever done. You know. So um, yeah, it's it you you have to be in it, you know. You can't just be going after the hits because I've seen the band probably thirty times live, and they never played played the game, you know. They're like they would play the hits sometimes, but then they would do shows where they would play no hits and half covers, you know. <laughs> so you and they would be, yeah, yeah, and they and they would alienate different people that might be sponsoring any concert or festival, right? Absolutely, especially in the early days. I mean, you know. Yeah. Who knows now? I mean, it'll be interesting to see if they indeed do get the tour this summer, what they're what it's going to sound like, you know. So mm-hmm. it's it's a totally different thing now. It's just the brothers doing it, which is I don't know how you feel about it, but um, I was kind of iffy at first because I'm going to miss the guys because I've been on this journey with not only the Robinson brothers, but with, of course with Steve Gorman and and the other guys. And uh, yeah, yeah no, how do you feel about this uh, Shake Your Money Maker tour? I mean, I think they're going to kill it. You know, I'm in. I'm glad the brothers are back together because I mean, uh, yeah, I'm in. I'm in too. And I was really excited. You know, with that being said, I, I was a little late to the party on the uh, Brothers of a Feather uh, duo acoustic tour. Um, right. I missed the window of getting tickets where uh, they they were playing a show uh, yeah, a couple of hours away from me. And you know, I just I snoozed you know 20 or 30 minutes and missed the bus. You know, sadly for tickets for that show, but. Nevertheless, I'm excited for this tour, and I'm I'm excited about what's happening in the rumor mill right now that the brothers, the Robinson brothers specifically, are um, possibly writing new material. But like like you said, I you know I miss the idea of having you know Steve in the fray. Um, right. I I love the tastefulness of Johnny Colt's bass playing. I, they have right. more than a capable bass player that's out with them. I believe uh, it's Mark Lefevre that used to be in the Tedeschi Trucks band. Um, oh yeah, he's, he's yeah. Great. So so they're gonna. I mean, you know, they're gonna have a stellar band. But you know, knowing what some of the initial pieces were like with those Crows records in the '90s, absolutely. I mean, I'll like you. I will certainly miss that chemistry. Right, for sure. Yeah, for sure. But um, it is what it is, you know. I'm just glad they're together, and hopefully they are writing new material in this COVID-19 environment we're in. It's a perfect time to write, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of these last – yeah, exactly. And one of these last gigs that they had, they had performed live was – I think it was an NPR Tiny Desk concert where they uh, – Yeah, that was great. Yeah, that was a, that was a nice uh, uh, you know, flashback, I guess. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah, so – we're talking with Bo from Rock Savages podcast, and, and Bo, you said that you have been a listener from the early days uh, of the Black Crows. How did you discover the band? Um, did you did you find about find out about them on your own, or was there you know just some sort of other pivotal human in in your sphere of family or friends that turned you on to the group? 
it's a long it's a long time ago now, but I would say how I got turned on to them was probably MTV, man, because uh, you know back then they had their first record. It's been so long ago now. Some some people don't even know who they are, but it, which just blows my mind. But um, it, they were all over MTV on their first and, and second record. So I mean, I, I was in on the first record, and you know, I think the the song that really drew me in the most was, of course, "She Talks to Angels." Because that video is so striking in, in its imagery and and all and all that, so I th- they they had me right from the very beginning. And you know, corporate TV shoved it down my throat. And back then, they had good stuff on, you know, so I didn't mind. You know, it was it. And you know what? I, I, before that, I mean, before the '90s, I think when I was you know eight, nine, ten years old, I was, was still listening to rock and roll, but it was my brother's stuff and my parents' stuff. You know what I mean? And when mm-hmm. a band like the Black Crows came around, I was like, "Oh, that's that's mine." Yeah. You know, along with the grunge scene, but yeah, the Black Crows were like, "That's that's my band." And the first record blew me away, and then once Southern Harmony came out, I was like, "Oh, I'm in. I'm in." As long as these guys are going to be around, you know. <laughs> so I hear, I yeah, that that's when it started for me. It's it's 1994. It's the Black Crows' third record second one with this particular iteration of the band. Do you think that Amorica, you know, before we really delve into the tracks on this record, do you think that it was a little bit of a departure sonically for them? Or do you think that they had been, you know, kind of working towards this sound all along? A departure is tough. It was different. And it was different in the approach on how they recorded it. Um, because Southern Harmony was, as I understand it, recorded pretty live, you know, with Brandon O'Brien and George uh, Draculius behind uh-huh. the helm there. But um, a departure, I don't, I don't know, but um, it was definitely, it was definitely different. And I, you know, as I've read and talked to people that are close to the guys, I mean, they really wanted to do a studio album, and you know. So they did, and they picked they picked a really good studio to do, which would be Sound City. You know, um, can't go wrong with that building. <laughs> I mean, it, yeah, man. I mean, it was almost perfect drum tracks. I mean, every that album sonically is perfect to me. And with JG Pugh behind the helm, I mean, it's too bad he's disappeared. I don't even know if he does anything anymore. But he was a master behind those knobs, man, on that board. I don't know what he did, but he he did their fourth album too. And they both sound fantastic. So um, maybe not so much of a departure as just a change of approach in how to execute the recording. So they do they, the the material does sound different in that aspect. Yeah, we are talking with Bo of the Rock Savages podcast here on Cover to Cover with Matt Tarkas, specifically about the Black Roses' third offering, Amorica, and Bo. This seems like a really good time to talk about your favorite tracks on this record. Would you like to would you like to tackle all of them or would you like to pick your absolute favorites on Amorica? It's tough, man. I mean it it changes. Cause like, <laughs> yeah. It yeah. it changes because, you know, I'll, I'll put it down for a while and I'll pick it back up and be like, oh that. You know, but uh one of my favorites is probably number one, gone, actually. You know, because, um, you know, it's got a heavy feel to it, you know. The guitar yeah. just 
the drums are smashing. Um, Curse Diamond is another one, nonfiction. She gave Good Sunflower, probably one of my top favorites on there for sure. Yeah. Um, but you can't deny any of it, really. It's it's tough. It's tough. But I'll save track one through eleven, sir. No, <laughs> uh, no. We'll we'll say she gave good sunflowers. Probably the one I've been really digging over the last couple of years. Are there any uh, lyrics in particular that stand out for you for she gave good sunflower? It wasn't so much the lyrics for she gave good sunflower. It was the guitars. You know. Yeah. The, the the kind of the the mellow breakdown at the end, you know. The, 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 I guess it's a breakdown, you know. The the outro of the song, I thought was really interesting. Um, lyrically, um, for Morta, I'm gonna have to say that Wiser Time is the one that really got me good with the lyrics and the poetry behind that, you know. And I think a lot of people agree. But then there's you know there's descending too. Um, Special songs, you know. I think just kind of lightning in the bottle, lyrically speaking. And you know, and now that Eddie Harsh is gone, the uh, end piano track on Descending is is just especially crushing too, you know. Yes, yes. You mentioned Wiser Time, and this was, I think, the first introduction of pedal steel, and you know, onto this record or any Crow's record for that matter. Um, I believe we hear some beautiful Fender Telecaster on this track, and it's um, it's five minutes and thirty three seconds of pure bliss, and it's just I feel like it's sequenced perfectly with ballad and urgency. I don't absolutely. I don't, I, I don't know how else to explain it. It's just there's a real coolness in the vocal, and then it just it just really picks up with a much more aggressive tempo change. What uh, what say you? Yeah, I mean, I agree completely with that that transition. I, yeah, I'd love to know how they did it because did they do the two songs together? Did they track them together? That's what it sounds like. I mean, they probably didn't, but uh, I'd love to talk to one of the guys and see how they did that. You know, it's like, did you track them both together? Right. You know, wouldn't it, that that would be amazing? Because I, I mean, it was on two inch tape. It's entirely possible that they did. Definitely. There was a lyric in here that just, for some reason, stuck out. Uh, 14 seconds until sunrise, tired but wiser for the time, lightning 30 miles away, 3,000 more in two days. You know, not to quote a commercial here, but, you know, he's throwing a lot of numbers out at you. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. And it, <laughs> he's really oh, here's some more numbers. while he's inside. <laughs> yeah, he does a good job. But, you know, you know, here's, here's some more numbers, dude. There's three solos in that song. There's two guitar solos and a piano solo. Right. You know, so I mean, that's completely unconventional, but completely natural, and you don't even know it unless you're paying attention. You know, so yeah, it's uh, just fantastic, man. I mean, I don't know what they were on. They, I know what they were on. They were doing mushrooms because there's the mushroom party in the studio when they're recording the record. So you know, sure there you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on a good day, it's not every day we could part the sea, and on a bad day, it's not every day. Glory beyond our reach. <laughs> it's 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 true. It's honest, and it could be it could be seen as a a love song, you know, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is why I like the Crows, man. They write love songs. You know, Born in My Pride from Southern Harmony is the same way. It's not a love song that's all gooey and and everything's awesome. They're t- they're bringing the human experience. To loving someone and yeah. 
hate to be corny, but I mean, it, it's it. That's exactly what they're doing. They're saying, "Hey, man, it's not always great." And I know sometimes you might want to strangle me, but you know, sometimes it is great. You know, and that's probably truer. Yeah, the good love than, gets messy for sure. Yeah, right. Absolutely. So I mean, that's 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 why it's so striking and special. You know. Bo, you also mentioned a tune here called Cursed Diamond. This is another one of these. I mean, the Crows, um, the clock was always running, you know. The, the right. jams are always flowing on every single track that they decide to cut. And this one is just shy of six minutes. And uh, it, it feels like a really close companion to Sometimes Salvation from Southern Harmony. It's got the same sort of scorching guitar kind of thing going on that's just pervasive throughout that's a good take i've never really thought of it that way but yeah it could be it could be a good companion to you know sometimes salvation for sure and i'm sure they've played it live those two right up against each other so beware from any cursed diamond live versions you're going to hear because you're going to hear a jam at the end of that there's no doubt but uh, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's like I said, it's hard to pick just one. Man, I mean, I can, I can listen to the like I said, I've been listening to this album for twenty five years now, something like that. So that's how you know it's good. And I think seeing how it challenged me uh, on my first couple of listens, I'll, it, it was striking. I'll never forget it. It's like you know, I mean, what is what is going on here? And I remember uh, reading an interview with Rich. And he was saying this kind of the same thing about it. Year, this was years later, but it was during the Amorica uh, press tour, you know, and them touring on the road for that record. He he said when we first, when me and Chris first played it for our friends, they hated it. Hmm. <laughs> so it's kind of a universal theme at first, but then you know, then they'd come back and say, "Oh, this is the best record you've ever done." And I can't say that for sure, but um, yeah, it's. Uh, they had kind of the same issue, and it's like, yeah, well, you're you're stretching out, you're changing the sound, and you're challenging the audience, you're challenging the listener, and I think that's what music should do, you know, if you mean it, you know what I mean? So absolutely, I've got two questions here, Bo. So sure, I, you know, one thing that I was completely uh, unaware of until I was preparing for this interview was that the Crows had very you know, potentially different album in can. Before they decided to record Amorica, they had a they had a record called Tall T A L L that was scrapped that right. was produced by Chris. And right. you know there there was a lot of instrumentation that is not present on Amorica that Chris had in mind, like yes. uh, you know French horns and, and you know maybe some other brass sections, you know that were going to be complementing these songs. And I immediately thought to myself, was he thinking about like creating something that could be an equivalent to Sgt. Pepper. Right. Something like that. And, you know, those ideas just decided to get scrapped in the studio in favor of Rich's vision for the song. Is that is that accurate? Well, I mean, I guess you'd have to ask the guys, but I have heard a different story okay. about Tall. And, and for those who don't know, Tall and they have another lost album called Band. So they have two scrapped albums. Okay. And then... They go in and record Amorica after Tall, but they have since released that both of those albums on a compilation called The Lost Crows, which I recommend if you guys are Black Crows fans to go check that out, and especially if you like Amorica, because the versions, the songs, 
the song versions that are from America that are on call are different. And you're right, they have horns and, and different kind of things. And they have like uh they have backing vocals, which are very different too. It kind of reminds me, strangely enough, it, I, the Moody Blues keeps coming up because it's mm. just grandiose and just huge. Now, mm. what I have heard, and I, I I believe they talked about this on their Behind the Music, you know, their VH1 Behind the Music episode. Right. Is that during that time, the brothers were fighting so incessantly that, you know, Chris would, they weren't even, they weren't even meeting in the studio. Like Chris would come in and do a mix in the daytime and leave. And then Rich would come at night or vice versa, something like that. And Rich would come back at night or in the day or whatever when Chris was gone and he would erase everything he did and start over. Oh, jeez. So, yeah. And, you know, you know, brotherly love, you know, I, you know, I get it completely. I was, you know, I was in the band with my brother too, and we kind of, we kind of did that stuff a little bit too in the studio back in the day. <laughs> but, um, yeah. So I understand it for sure. But it, them doing that cost, you know, it was a budget buster for them. I mean, I think Amorica and Tall together cost the band over a million dollars to record. So that is the story that I have heard, and I think it's true because I've heard it many times. Wow. And you've met – you told me earlier that you ha, – have you met Rich before? Do you have a yeah. – Yeah, I've met Rich twice. that you could share with our audience? Oh, absolutely. i got a great one, man. So yeah. huge Black Crows fan, tumultuous though. So Rich also has his own solo career, which if you haven't explored his solo records, I recommend that you do because they are, they are fantastic. They're not as popular, but they're – I would say just as good, different, but good. And I mean, he just took the black crow sound, stripped it down, and and he's, he he does lead vocals and all that stuff. So re- I recommend uh, getting his solo stuff. All of his solo albums are fantastic. But um, in 2014, <clears throat> my brother and I went out to Woodstock, New York, where he had recorded his latest solo album. I believe it was called The Ceaseless Sight, and. He recorded the album in Woodstock, New York at a place called um, Applehead Studios. And Applehead Studios was on a property that was previously owned by one of the guys in the band, Rick Danko, had owned oh, yeah. the property. And he built a big barn studio on kind a 17-year-old. Levon did, right? Levon did the same thing yeah. right down the road. So these, these two guys, had, yeah, they both built these big barn studios, Rick apparently built this big studio on a 17 acre llama farm and it's an a, it's an amazing studio i can share some pictures on instagram later maybe tag you so your listeners can check it out but um so what what they did was that what they started doing at levon's place which is coincidentally right down the road it's probably like a mile or two down the road from applehead and what they do at these studios is they do these things called rambles and they do it frequently if i'm not mistaken so the people Woodstock can come and just watch concerts. I don't know if it's free or not, but they, they charge people a little bit of money. And then they just come in, and, they, and a bunch of different musicians come in, and they just jam. And Chris Robinson had been going to these rambles, and I think Rich was part of that too over the years. And they they decided to do that for the, la- the, the last uh, Black Crow studio record, which is called Before the Frost. They would invite... They invited friend or they invited fans out for like five days in a row. And they had five different sessions, 
and the fans can watch them record new music. And they did it, and they did it in front of a live audience, and then that's the record, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so after the, and I recommend listening to that too if you haven't. But um, so the, the the guys broke up again, you know. I think this was the second time, and Rich recorded his solo album at Applehead Studios, and he decided to do a weekend of that concept. So it was Saturday, Sunday. I think it was a hundred fans could come in a day. And they packed a hundred people into the studio, and he, they, his, him and his band would just do a set, and they recorded it, and they pressed it on vinyl, and they filmed it too. It's on YouTube. You can check it out, and uh, just, just uh, type in Rich Robinson Woodstock Sessions, and, and we're in there somewhere. You can see us in the background if you look really close. Bo from the Rock Savages podcast, but uh, <laughs> so. So we we paid like a hundred bucks or something, and we went out there, and they had they had merch, and they, you know they had dinner for us, and all everybody was just hanging out, and the whole band was hanging out. So yeah, I got to talk to Rich uh, briefly there, but we were prior to uh, the session starting, we were standing outside, and there were a bunch of road cases on the lawn, and uh, his, his roadie at the time was uh, spray painting over the Black Crows logo. And we walk up we walk up to him and we're like, Man, are they really done? And he looks at me and he's like, Yeah, they're done done and we're like, shit, you know? But yeah. whatever. I mean it is what it is. So that was kind of a bummer, but that roadie ended up being uh an Irish music an Irish musician named Dave O'Grady who we kind of became friends with. He's been on our podcast a couple of times, but he traveled around with Rich and uh he does his own uh, music too. So, um, yeah, that was a. I would, is it a cool story? Yeah, it's cool because we were there, but it's kind of it was kind of sad at the time. But um, yeah, that's and they pressed it on vinyl and it's it's available on iTunes and all that stuff. You guys can go check it out and uh, it's called Woodstock Sessions, Rich Robinson. So uh, it's it's awesome. And if uh, Applehead Studios has any more of these Woodstock stock sessions, you guys. Check it out, follow them, and 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 go because you know some bands or bigger bands actually are starting to do that kind of stuff, and I think it's a great idea. It's very different. We are talking with Bo of the Rock Savages podcast here on Cover to Cover with Matt Targa, all things Black Crows, all things Amorica. Uh, Bo, you mentioned another tune that you really really dig off of this record, and it's called Nonfiction, and. Uh, Old tune. I mean, a lot of crunchy acoustic guitar, some hand percussion. You know, you have bass, keyboards, and piano certainly. And uh, stylistically, it, it, this is one of these tunes that you know somehow I don't know. I had this like idea hybridized in my head that it's kind of like thorn in my pride. You know, sort of meshed with like the the approach that they took on uh, that cover of Bob Marley's "Time Will Tell." It's a really right. it's a really fun track on this record. It's fun and it's strange because it's actually a, the music is actually pretty chipper and kind of happy sounding a little bit, you know. Uh-huh. But the lyrics are really kind of dark, you know. I don't know if you've noticed that, but I mean they're they're not happy lyrics. I'm but, reading, yeah, I'm reading some liner notes here. The chorus chorus kind of goes like this: "The clouds conspire above my head. I overheard them say, I wish he was dead today. Right. The sun set, burn my eyes, and in the next room I hear someone cry." Yeah, that's yeah. that's pretty dark. 
that's that's the conundrum of the Black Crows. But the song is actually pretty light-hearted, you know, music-wise, you know. So it's a uh, that's it's just intriguing to me. It's like, well, Rich Rich wrote the music, and Chris comes in with his these bummer lyrics. Beautiful lyrics, though, and uh, you know, I don't think um, every song needs to be happy. You know, you need to write a sad song too every now and again if that's how you're feeling. So um, it's genuine and uh, unique and very cool. Right on. Are there any other tracks that uh, that really that strike you as you know really standout tunes on Amorica, or are these like probably your top four or five? I would probably say they're my top four or five, but I mean, like I said, man. I mean, any time I listen to the record, it's it's the front to back usually, so it's kind of a journey, you know. I have it on yeah. vinyl, so there's two records in there, and you know, there's there's some flipping involved, but it's well worth it and. I think anything listening to, and you should work for it a little bit sometimes. Meaning, buy some vinyl, buy a record player, put it on. That's right. No commercials. Nobody's controlling you. You know, you're just controlling yourself, and you're and you're doing a deep listen, which I think is kind of a lost art these days. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. It forces you Shadow. to get off, get off the couch, and you know, flip the other side. You know, yeah, kind of kind of do a deep listen and let it seep into your your DNA, there, man. You know. For sure. For sure, yeah. Hey, I, I have a question, though. What, what what attracts you to the Black Crows music? I'm going to flip the script on your own podcast, man. Oh, no. That I'll is... tell you, because I have a take on this, and it's it's they're, kind they're of unique. <laughs> <laughs> Not podcasting, don't you know? <laughs> Whatever we want. The reason why I ask is I, yeah. I have a completely kind of unique kind of um, overall picture of why I like the Black Crows, and I'll share it in a second. But go ahead. I, I like the Black Crows because their music to me sounds it sounds dangerous in its own way. Like I, I like the tension between brothers. I like right. I like knowing this like sort of a little bit of a backstory about why the brothers, you know, really are constantly butting heads. But there's just I I love. I love the guitar attack from Mark Ford and right. Rich. Like Rich is just—he's he, such a great like arpeggiated guitarist. But right. like when they brought Mark Ford in, like it just—it allowed him to solo a little bit more, and they just—they—they they feed off of each other so well. And it's—it's it's why I love bands like the Almond Brothers. Oh you know? yeah, what Dwayne and Dickie did, what. Warren did with Dickie, what you know, Derek and Warren did together. I I love watching bands that can finish each other's sentences on stage, and I think the Crows, you know, they they can do it so effortlessly when right. they're completely locked in. They they've proven time and again they do it well in the studio. They you know I, I've I've only seen them. I don't think I've seen the Crows live since two thousand. One ish, late two thousand one, early oh, wow. two thousand two. I think it was the last year that Eddie Harsh was in the group. It was a show at the Beacon or something like that, and yeah. So it's he it's came been, back. It's been a couple minutes. Yeah. Um. So that was that was sort of my last go round. You know, from the with the Black Crows as a live unit, but right. I just I I appreciate their unwavering commitment to just playing music without a net. If that right. makes sense, you know. I love it. I, I just love them. They're you. You said it perfectly earlier. Like they are your band. You know, right. they're your rock and roll band. That's right. how I, I feel about the Crows. 
Yeah, dangerous is the right word. Like because I've seen them so many times over the years, I mean, all the way up till the end, really, and yeah. uh, the end of the last time, which was 2013. But um, dangerous is the right word, man. I mean, I've, I've seen Chris go off on people before. I mean, just five minute rants, you know. <laughs> Get your feet off my stage and buy a T-shirt on the way out, sir. You know that kind of stuff. So, yeah, yeah. There always an element you never knew. You never knew what was going to happen. You know, which is kind of uh, cool. But I, I, I guess it boils down to the songs at the end of the day. But here's my take on it. I think the reason why I love this band so much is because they garner so much respect, not only from the rock and roll community, but here's a unique position. Uh, I, you know, also like some heavy metal here and there, and uh, not all of it, but some of it. I have a handful of bands that I love, and when, whenever the Crows do something and they come back out with like an album or a tour and it's announced and it's in the media, and it, it, they get so much respect from the heavy metal crowd for some reason, which is all the comments were almost always, you know, pretty positive, and I was like, wow. I was like, but I know what that is. It's because my two favorite elements of the Black Crows is is Rich and it was Steve together. Mm-hmm. Aside from the songs, because the songs matter the most, obviously. But sonically speaking, those two together were so powerful and loud together. I think the just the sheer volume of the band and the gusto and how they played, they played hard and loud. And I think... That is what has garnered so much respect from the heavy metal community. It's not. Yeah. It's fucking crazy. I don't know if we can cuss on your podcast. Sorry, but, um, but yeah, it's uh, it's uh, yeah, I I I came to that realization at a show in Columbus, Ohio, like a few years ago, because I took my buddy and he was just a metalhead, and I was like, Nah, man, you gotta come see the Black Crows. He's like, Oh, you know that? I don't know, man. And I took him out, and they just they were they we were like five rows back and they were just raging it was so loud electric set full band you know just in our face and i looked over at him and at one point he just started he just did a yeah you know like <laughs> the concert going rock guy you know stereotypical yeah you know you hear that yeah. stuff in the recordings i i just looked out of the last i was like they got you man they got you <laughs> so, so yeah i think that's why i like them the most you know we are Talking with Bo of Rock Savages podcast here on Cover to Cover with Matt Tarka. And Bo, I like to close every conversation with a discussion about cover art. And we <laughs> we live in just the Wild West. You know, let's you know, I think we've right. all kind of faced the facts at this point. Like pretty much anything goes in terms of what can be created, what's available, how things are released, et cetera, et cetera. You know, but, and cover art has always been something that has complemented records since the very beginning. 21st right. century is no different. You know, you can still release things on CD and vinyl, but it's all, you also have to, you know, have something to complement whatever you decide to release digitally. And right. Amorica is a very, let's just call it a very memorable album cover. Um, striking, isn't it? <laughs> you know, I mean, one common question here with this whole with this whole um, discussion is, you know, what's conjured up in your mind? It's pretty obvious when you look at it, but you know, 
do you think that this is an accurate representation of what the listener should expect when they rip off the plastic and dive right into the music? I'm trying to think about what I thought about it when okay. I first saw it. Can, can we, should I we do- describe for our listeners what the cover looks like? Well, sure. It, it is a uh, it's a it's an actual it's a Hustler magazine cover from 1976, I think. Yeah. And it's and it's a lady's nether regions, and she's wearing she's wearing a bikini bottom with uh, you know an American flag covering her her privates, you know. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, what it is to me, it's pure rebellion. And I know Steve Gorman hates the album cover. I think he said it in his uh, his recent book. Uh, you know, because uh, Chris Robinson definitely did the album artwork for all the Black Crow stuff. Well, he was the art director, we'll say. Mm-hmm. I think he did that. I know he did it. He did it. I know why he did it. He did it as a statement of pure rebellion. This is, this is rock and roll, and you you nailed it earlier with the word dangerous. It could have been a beautiful album cover, safe, you know, and more in tune with how the music sounds. But this was a direct. It was a. It was an fu to the establishment, and it. They paid the price for that. I mean, um, it, it. It tanked the record sales of it. You know, that album cover was banned. I mean, I think my first version of it was a censored version of the album cover, which is completely ridiculous in my mind. You know. Um, there's nothing wrong with it. Um, it's striking and it's uh, it's rock and roll, man. And there, that's kind of the the Black Crows don't sound punk rock, but they definitely have a punk rock attitude, and they have a rebellious attitude, and they always have. And that is what the, the album cover for Morco represents to me. And as I said earlier, they were rebelling. Maybe not rebelling, but they were challenging their audience, and they decided to do it with their artwork as well. So, as an all-encompassing piece of art of work, uh, it makes sense to me now. All these years later, I think the more and more I listen to it as the years go on, there it's such a deep and a rich recording that there is so much layered back there, and you know, in the background, and you can always find something new about it you know if you actually listen to the instrumentation and stuff like oh i didn't know he did that or there's this little shaker back there or you know in this part or whatever so you know i you know i can kind of lose myself in the analytical side of it but it's like yeah it can it can go both ways you know so i mean i think that's why it's just a special record for me and a lot of people you know so yeah bo from the rock savages podcast it's been such a pleasure to talk with you tonight. Thank you so much for coming on the program and sharing, you know, how this record has deeply affected you in many different ways. Thank you so much. Yeah, man, it's uh, that was really fun and uh we should uh let's keep doing it, man. Come on our podcast and we can we can do this format or we can just talk about music in general or or whatever, you know, we're, we're, we're down for anything. So I, I appreciate the time and it, it was a blast. Let's definitely do it again. All right. My special thanks to Bo of the Rock Savages podcast for taking some time to stop by cover to cover today. For all of you listeners out there, thank you very much. And please remember to hit that subscribe button on that device in which you listen to your favorite podcast, whether it's Stitcher, TuneIn, Apple, 
or Google Play. Take a moment to tell a friend or some of your family about our show. Let us know how much you like the show by giving us a good rating. It will certainly help us appear higher in those search results. And as always, feel free to drop us a line at hello at covertocoverconversations.com. Intro and outro music of our podcast is produced by Jarrett Nicolay at Mixtape Studios in Northern Virginia. And we hope you discovered some new music, perhaps rekindled your love for an old forgotten song, and shared a good moment with us as we continue to sonically explore a world from cover to cover.